0: Father, thank you. Thank you. We praise you today, Lord. Um, God, uh, there's been uh, good news, great news this week for some. And there's been heartbreaking news for others. And yet, Lord, we come and give praise and thanks to you, knowing that you're such a rock upon which we stand, such a solid rock, a foundation for our entire lives and so, Lord, may the reality of the surety and the certainty of our faith be present this morning. May we stand solidly on that solid ground. And may you fill our hearts today with your presence. And that you would do so through your word, that you would draw us close to you, God, in every way. Help us to understand the peace, the amazing power, and the perspective that you offer us through Christ Jesus. Protect us, God, from just going to church. And help us instead to have an experience with you that is real. That is relevant. And will cause us to be different people as we walk out of this place today. To impact this world. In the name of Christ. Thank you again. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. I pray. That I would speak your words. And I would speak them with your heart. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 22. Today, such a wonderful theme to talk about. We're going to talk about the afterlife. We're going to talk about heaven. We're going to talk about eternity. It's a theme, of course, all throughout the scripture. And I want you to know as we talk about this theme, it's amazing what Americans believe about the afterlife. A CBS News poll revealed that 78% of Americans believe in life after death. Isn't that something? Here's what they say, the most religiously observant Americans are most likely to say that there is an afterlife. About 9 in 10 of those who attend religious services weekly or almost every week believe in it, that would be us. This view is shared by 7 in 10 of those who rarely never or never attend services. 7 in 10 still believe in the afterlife, though they don't attend church. Americans, they say, of all age groups, all ethnicities believe in the afterlife. Now amazingly, in the same poll, 87% said that science would never be able to prove that there is life after death. So this is a matter of faith, whether you're attending church or not. It is something that we see all throughout the Bible, this theme, that there is a heaven, that there is an eternity. And think about, there's no, there's really almost no more important question than that, right? I mean, this is this is so important. If there is no life after death, then death really is the end. There is no heaven or hell. There is no reward or punishment. There is no eternity with God and with others. But the scripture is clear there is if you look on your message outline, you're going to see several verses from the Old Testament that affirm and support this idea of life after death. And of course, the New Testament records the, G- the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus about it. And without a doubt, all throughout the New Testament, the primary teaching of Christianity, the foundational teaching of Christianity is that there is an eternity. There is a resurrection. Christ was resurrected from the grave. And because of his resurrection, we will be raised to life as well. But what we need to understand is that in the first century in Jesus' day, there was quite a debate about this reality, quite a debate. And it was among the Jews. In the first century, there was a debate between the Pharisees the group of Jews known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees about this thing of the resurrection. So what I want to do as we begin, I want to review for you the whole idea of these different sects that were a part of the Jewish faith. These different segments, these divisions, if you will, of the Jewish faith. Here they were. Okay, there were four of them. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, we read a lot about them in the scripture. I'm going to talk about them in just a moment. The Essenes. Now, the Essene community was a group of people who were radically committed To the preservation and the copying of the Holy Scripture, the Old Testament. In fact, if you went to Israel with us, we visited an Essene community there in the desert near the Dead Sea where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. That was the result of the Essenes who had copied the Scripture accurately doing so and were radically committed to it. And then you have the Zealots. The Zealots were the rebels of the Jews, they were the ones who were always leading rebellions against the Romans. Rebellions uh, to, uh, to uprise and overthrow the Roman Empire. So these were the different divisions. And what we want to look at for today's passage is we want to look at the idea of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Maybe you haven't learned these things about these groups. It's pretty interesting. These two groups were a part of the same faith, but they were divided in what they believed. Now, the Pharisees were more in number, but the Sadducees were smaller. They were an elite sect because they were wealthy. They were aristocrats, if you will. They were wealthy, and so the Pharisees were more popular with the common people, and because of uh, their wealth, the Sadducees were unpopular. The Pharisees despised Roman rule, hated the fact that Rome ruled over the Jewish nation. The Sadducees, however, favored Roman rule. Why? Because they were in bed with the Romans. Their power and their prosperity was tied to the Romans. The Pharisees embraced the entire Old Testament and the oral traditions that followed from the Old Testament. But the Sadducees, on the other hand, only embraced, really, they were more conservative. They only really looked to the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Those were the most important writings to them. And here's, the here's the biggest difference. The Pharisees embraced the idea of the resurrection. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. They denied the fact that there was life after death. So they were sad, you see. You're never going to forget that. (laughs) This was the major difference. But however, there is one thing that both of them agreed upon. One thing they both agreed upon. That's this, that Jesus must be killed. (laughs) Because Jesus' existence threatened their power threatened their prosperity, threatened their position. And so as was the case, we looked at it last week, remember the the confrontation between these religious leaders and Jesus was coming to a climax? I mean, it was on the rise here. This is the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. This is Tuesday. He's going to die on Friday. And he's having this confrontation with these religious leaders. And they come to him again with a question, trying to trick him, trying to ruin his credibility before the people with a question. In order to throw him off, they should have learned by now. For three years, they've been doing this. And Jesus knocks it out of the park every time. I mean, they're playing checkers. He's playing chess. And yet they come to him again with this question. Let's look at the question, Matthew 22, verse 23. Here's what it says. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Then they give this absurd hypothetical. Here's here's where the trick question comes into play. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, they're trying to trick Christ. And what they're referring to is a law that's tucked away in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's become known as this, the law of the leverate marriage. Lever, meaning Latin for husband's brother. Here's the idea. A man having his wife and having no children, if he were to die, that widow must be married to the oldest brother who was unmarried. The oldest other brother who was unmarried. They would bear bear a child, and that child would be in the line of the deceased brother. That's the idea here. It was a way of doing two things. You can imagine in this tribal community how important this was. To keep the tribes in line, it was a way of protecting and providing for widows, but it was also a way of making sure that the heritage of the deceased brother would continue. Now, that's all okay. <laughs> but they twist it, don't they? Here, here's what they do. They make an appeal to the absurd. They tell this very elaborate story about seven brothers and all of them dying. <laughs> right? The first one died, the wife would be passed down, the next one died, so on and so forth, all the way down to the seventh. And I'm saying to myself, why are all these husbands dying? <laughs> I mean, about number five, I'd be saying, no thanks. I'm not going to marry this woman, <laughs> right? But they, they give this, this hypothetical illustration About all these husbands and about all of them dying. And they say, well, okay, if if there is an afterlife. And by the way, this was a question that they would throw at the Pharisees. And the Pharisees couldn't answer it like Jesus did. (laughs) Jesus answers it. If there is an afterlife. Well, after all, whose husband in the afterlife would she be? And Jesus sees right through what they're doing. Here's the idea. The nature of the question reveals the heart of the questioner's. Jesus knows they're not looking for an answer. He knows they're not being sincere. It's rooted in unbelief. It's an insincere question. I thought about that. And I thought about my questions to God sometimes. How how sincere are my questions to the Lord? Or sometimes my questions clever ways for me to make my point to God or to get what I want or to excuse my lack of willingness to submit to God? We all have the ability to devise ways of getting around doing what is right. And that's what was going on with these guys. We can justify ourselves even before God. I have a friend whose father used to make videotape copies of movies. He wouldn't sell them. He would just make copies and give them away. And his son said to him, Dad, haven't you seen that warning, you know, that FBI warning that says it's a federal offense, that kind of thing? And his dad said to his son, he said, well, I don't copy that part. (laughs) Trick ways of getting around, doing what we want to do. This is what was happening with the Pharisees. A very insincere question. Now, sincere questions are always good. Questions are always good to God. But this was not sincere, and Jesus knew it. So he had a response. If you look down in verse 29, we're going to see his response. Here's how it starts. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. <laughs> okay, cuts to the chase. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he begins to unpack those two things. First of all, he addresses the issue of their ignorance of the power of God in verse 30. Here's what he says For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now let's, let's park there for a moment, because I know what's coming up in your mind. Well, what about, what about marriage in heaven? The first thing we need to see is that Jesus is affirming and reaffirming the fact that there is a resurrection. He says in the resurrection, this is what it's going to look like. So he affirms the resurrection and he talks about the nature of the resurrection. And he says this, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So marriage is a gift from God to be enjoyed on this earth, a gift given to enjoy intimacy and love with another individual on this planet, a gift given by God also for the perpetuation of the human race. And Jesus says this, by the power of God in the resurrection, in the afterlife, in heaven, both of these needs will be perfectly met. That's the idea here. Marriage as we know it, what he's saying, marriage as we know it on this earth will no longer be needed in that day. Now, that's not to say that we won't know our spouses. We will. But this is an earthly reality that will look differently in heaven. We will know our spouses, but in that day, there'll be perfect communion with God, perfect communion with all others in the faith community, more deep and more profound than we can ever understand on this earth. By the power of God, that's going to happen. He said, you don't know the power of God. You don't understand what God can do, how God can transform relationships. In that day and age. So I will be there with my wife, Tammy. I will be there. Forever and ever. And We will all be together. In perfect joy. See, and it's not going to look the same. And then he goes on in this strain of talking about. You don't understand the power of God. But to say that they will be like angels. Be like angels of God in heaven. Now, we won't be angels. It's not saying that. We will be like angels. And by the way, in Acts chapter 23, we learned that the Sadducees didn't believe in something else. They didn't believe in angels. So Jesus is confronting that belief here. We will be like angels. We will have none of the limitations, none of the needs that we experience now in these unglorified bodies of ours. Here's the point. They were thinking way too narrowly about the power of God, minimizing the power of God, thinking way too earthly, minimizing the fact that God in his power can overcome some minute, picky law of the Old Testament and some absurd application of it. They're missing the bigger point of the resurrection. The power of God is able to raise us to life and to give us glorified, Bodies and a glorified reality to transform this fallen state into something brand new. And he's just saying, you just don't get that. You just don't get God's power. Secondly, he addresses this other thing. What did he say? He said, you do not know the power of God, nor do you understand the Scripture. So this is the second thing that he addresses, the principle of Scripture. In verse 31 through 33. He goes on and says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, let me talk to you about that. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. All right. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He is quoting a part of the Old Testament. The part that says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is from Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared before Moses. And God says to Moses there at the burning bush, you may remember this, Moses, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am their God. These men who had died physically, although they died centuries before Moses' time, God was reaffirming to Moses that they still existed in the eternities before God. Now remember, which part of the Old Testament did they value? The law of Moses, the books of Moses. The Pentateuch, the first five books. What part of the Bible of the, of the Old Testament is Jesus quoting? From Exodus. Second book. And so he's using the very scriptures that they valued to support the very doctrine that they denied. The ideal here is this. He is the God of the living. He is the God of the living. Not the God of the dead. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. And they live in eternity before me. He is the God of the living. So through all this conflict and this back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders, let's kind of land the plane. What are some implications for us, okay? What what would this mean to you and me? And it's reaffirming some things that are very basic, some things that we already believe but maybe have forgotten. Here's the first thing. There is life after this life. We need to reiterate that. There is life after this life. Jesus reaffirms it here, which leads and begs another question. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? Are you living like that? Are you aware of that reality? And does that transform the here and now? Does that give you strength to carry on? Does that give you strength to fight the good fight while God has left you here on this earth? Does it help you to understand that there is a hope of heaven in the future? Does it allow you to arrange your priorities in some way differently, saying that life is not just about here and now? I should have an eye on eternity. I should live in a way that reflects eternity, that I'm not a citizen of this world, but that ultimately heaven is my home. See, that reality affects us now. It should. Here's the second implication. The fact that there is eternity, as Jesus describes it here, means it is different, it is wonderful, it is beyond words. He would say in this particular text, hey, listen guys, marriage just, it won't be the same. Uh, Heaven is a lot different than the earth. Our relationship to God, our relationship to others, relationships will be perfectly fulfilled in that day. It's going to be different. It's going to be wonderful. And he says we will be like the angels beyond description. Now, the book of Revelation tries to describe what heaven will be like. I mean, it uses all kinds of imagery to do so. It exceeds the limitations of words to do so. The ideal here is that that day, that age, that time is different and wonderful. Living in the awareness, the reality that this is only our temporary home does a lot of good for you and me. When we used to have our offices across the street. Um, I looked out the window. Those of you who have been over there, you know, there's these beautiful, large oak trees. And there was one sitting right outside my window early in the morning. I'd be in the office and I was praying and thinking and I'd look out the window and I'd see that old oak tree. And I remember having moments of just thinking, you know, that tree was here before I was. And that tree more than likely is going to be here after I'm gone. The tree has outlived me. And it just resonated in my heart the fact that, hey, you know, this is, this is all pretty temporary. We're not guaranteed the time that we are given on this earth. None of us are. But he has given us life. He's given us breath. And we're to fight for that. We're to enjoy it. It's a gift of God, but always remembering in that that there's something more in the long term. To ponder the fact that eternity awaits you and me. So we don't often think about the temporary nature of our time here on this earth. We get so busy, don't we? We just don't consider how time is fleeting and that one day our home will be in heaven. In fact, we kind of live as if this is our permanent residence. Only then to be surprised... At the passing of a loved one or disruption to our health. These experiences bring us back to the reality once again that this is our temporary home. And this is the reminder from Christ to you and me beyond this conflict that was taking place. This is Jesus' reminder. And think about it in this sense too. Think about how Jesus was affirming the resurrection knowing that three days later He would be arrested, he would be killed, he would be buried in a tomb. He's not talking about this in kind of a disconnected, unemotional way. He knew that the resurrection awaited him. Just a few days later, he would experience this thing that he was talking about. So our great assurance, our great assurance is because Christ was risen, we will be too. Heaven is our home. And it's a very beautiful thing. We get glimpses of it, don't we, every once in a while? Little glimpses of it. Where we see sacrificial love taking place. They're clues, hints of eternity. We we get our breath taken away by a beautiful mountain range that we see. or We look at the intricate beauty of a flower. And it just speaks to our heart about something beyond this place. Some place beautiful unimaginable, a home that waits for us. Here's what Max Locato said. He says, we may speak about a place where there are no tears, no death, no fear, no night. Revelation chapter 21 talks about that in detail, about the new heaven and new earth. But those are just the benefits of heaven. He says the beauty of heaven is seeing God. One day we will be face to face. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we will see face to face. Their questions, their manipulation, their tricky way of trying to uh, approach Jesus, all those things belied a greater thing that was taking place in their heart. It was their unbelief. Their lack of faith in the power of God to do something beyond what they could ask or imagine. That's the God that we serve. So this is what I'd like to ask us to do today. I want to ask you to bow your head. Close your eyes, please. I want you to reflect and respond upon this whole idea that this is our temporary home. And folks... um, The question today is not Is there an afterlife? We believe that. We affirm it. Jesus taught it. Jesus affirmed it in this passage. He believed it. That's not the pertinent question today. Here's the question How are you living because of it? Is the question. Is it possible for you to gain strength for the struggles that you're facing right now? To fight for the things that matter? Is it possible that you could rearrange your priorities and your focus and give up this, this pull downward to the things of this earth that you get so worried about, so consumed over, so preoccupied with that ultimately you're going away. It don't matter in eternity. The apostle Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He was talking about. The time that God has given us, we fight for, we live for. We give ourselves to Christ. The life to come will be so much better. Can the reality of the hope of heaven change your heart, change your mind, give you a new perspective today? Will you be different because of it? Lord, our God in heaven. Thank you for this amazing truth. Thank you that heaven awaits each and every one of us. Help us to not be guilty. the sin, this fogginess of the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were seeking to make God in their own image. Instead, Father, help us to be willing to submit to you, to arrange our life in such a way that honors you, to transcend the things of this earth, that we might live, God, with the idea that heaven is our home. May it change us.